In a world filled with movies, comedies, dramas, thrillers, and action-packed adventures, only one podcast dives deep into the magnificent titles found on HBO Max, and only one man can host such a show. Me! Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the final episode of season one of the HBO Max Movie Club. And boy, oh boy, do we have a humdinger of an episode for you. In celebration of The Matrix Resurrections, which is in theaters and streaming for a limited time on HBO Max starting December 22nd. So if you're listening to this after that date, go the hell over to your television and stream it now. We are talking all things The Matrix. If you're unfamiliar with this cultural phenomenon, let me force feed you a red pill and catch you up. And just know that this was actually a blind spot for me until very recently. But now that I've seen the film, I am changed and can never go back. Truly. Released on March 31st, 1999, The Matrix was a forever game changer for the sci-fi genre. Written and directed by the Wachowskis, The Matrix earned $465.3 million at the box office, off a budget of $63 million and would go on to spawn two direct sequels, which were The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, both released in 2003. As well as the film I mentioned before, The Matrix Resurrections, but it's being stressed as not a sequel to join the original trilogy, but a film that is going to stand all on its own, okay? So know that. The film earned four Oscar nominations and won all of them. Clean sweep. Best film editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. And this was the year that Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace was released. So you know they earned it, okay? There was a behemoth in the race that looked like it was going to clean up all the technical awards, but the Wachowskis came along and said, no, the force is not with you, it's with us, against all odds. The movie changed the game in terms of special effects, seamlessly blending CGI and practical effects like we hadn't seen before, pioneered the technique of bullet time, in which the heightened perception of certain characters is represented by allowing the action within a shot to progress in slow motion while the camera appears to move through the scene at normal speed, allowing the sped-up movements of certain characters to be perceived normally. So this was the daddy of movies that used the bullet time technique. You know what I'm talking about, where the bullet sort of moves through time and space in slow motion. It stars Keanu Reeves as Neo, Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus, Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith, and Joe Pantoliano as Cypher, among others. The Matrix depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality, The Matrix, which intelligent machines have created to distract humans while using their bodies as an energy source. There's basically a situation where humans are being used as batteries in these little pods. Crazy! And horrifying if you think about where AI is going, but I don't want to terrify you all. You can do that on your own time, on your own computers, which I'm sure you have, it being the year of our Lord 2021. When computer programmer Thomas Anderson, under the hacker alias Neo, uncovers the truth, he is drawn into a rebellion against the machines, along with other people who have been freed from the Matrix. 
The Matrix is an example of the cyberpunk subgenre of science fiction. The Wachowskis' approach to action scenes was influenced by Japanese animation and martial arts films, and the film's use of fight choreographers and wire foo techniques from Hong Kong action cinema influenced subsequent Hollywood action film productions. I mean, you see this movie pretty much copied all the time, often through parody, because you really can't do The Matrix without people being like, I mean, that's The Matrix. It was very iconic for its fight scenes, its action choreography. It received largely positive reviews from critics who praised its innovative visual effects, action sequences, cinematography, and entertainment value. The film is considered to be among the best science fiction films of all time and was added to the National Film Registry for Preservation in 2012. I am so excited for myself and for you, the listener, to welcome talented actor Griffin Newman and film critic for The Atlantic, David Sims, of the podcast Blank, check to uh, i'm telling you the best in the biz and if you want to hear one of the most chaotic episodes in podcasting history go to the blank check episode with me and bo and yang talking about brokeback mountain you will not be disappointed if you love chaos and gay they host like i just said one of the very best movie podcasts out there blank check let's get into it Well, listen, I've never been so happy to have taken the red pill. We are going to be ingesting knowledge and culture. And afterwards, we're going to know truth. We're not going to be able to go back. And the Sentinels are going to come try and kill us. Thank you guys so much for being here. How the hell's it going? Good. How are you doing? Oh, good. I mean, I, I listen, when I heard that it, you guys wanted to come on for this episode, I was like, I feel like I've done the right thing here. And I just want to kick it off with a question. Um, just ultimately, you're, you're sitting in a room with Morpheus. He whips out his palms and he says, red pill, blue pill. What are we doing? Griffin, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would say my answer has fundamentally changed in the last two years. I think, I think pre-pandemic, I, I take the red pill. I'm like, I don't want to be blind. I want to know. Let me like jump into the muck. Let me fight, you know, the good fight. Yeah. And now exactly. I feel like we've we've all been red pilled, not in the reappropriated use of the term. Right. But I feel like the whole world has has now just they unplugged all of us. And I very much yeah. feel like uh, Cypher saying, like, give me that. Give me that steak. I want to think steak is real again. Mm hmm. Exactly right. I want to enjoy the fancy restaurant. Uh, I, I used to think I wanted to know the truth, and now it's it, God. It's unpleasant. Yeah. Now that we've been forced into abject horror, yeah. it's like, do I want truth? Yeah. I yeah, don't want to look exactly. at sentinels all the time. These fucking <laughs> robot squids haunting me. This yeah. is the thing with the Matrix. <laughs> is yeah. Griffin is answered with the sort of real world, world philosophy, which yes. I think is appropriate. Yes. But right. like, if you're thinking about the world of the Matrix, I feel like. If I'm presented with the red pill and the blue pill, I'm taking the red pill, right? I made it this far. Yeah. I want to know what it is. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if someone's giving me a slideshow and they're like, look, it's either your fairly regular life or, right, you're going to live on like an industrial ship and eat muck and, you know, your life's going to be pretty yeah. brutal. I'm probably going to munch yeah. on that bluey, you know, <laughs> going to chomp yeah. it down. I want the blue. You're going to do some blue chew? I'm going to do a blue chew, exactly. But I got to <laughs> say... 
I think if I live in the world of the Matrix, I probably am never making it to that meeting, to the Morpheus meeting. I don't think I'm yeah. one of those people who's like, <laughs> no, something, I need to fix something about the world. I'm just like, I don't know, you know, whatever. I can watch movies. That's okay. I'm rarely on time for meetings oh. anyway. The streets of the Matrix are pretty goddamn crowded. Yep. I'm probably getting overwhelmed and sitting in my little cubicle Every, and just chilling. Everyone's bumping into each other yeah. all the time with their sliding phones. Yeah, getting distracted by ladies in red. Yeah. As a gay man, I still think I'm distracted by the lady in red. I mean, I still want to know her story. She has it. She undeniably has it. She, I mean, <laughs> look, in, in a movie with arguably several gay icons, I think that mm-hmm. she really is is the one. You know what <laughs> she's, I mean? she's your one. She's, well, she's like, the Matt Rogers one. Yeah. She, she, well, she's the one I identify with the most. <laughs> Everyone's in their suits going to work in the morning. Yeah. Where's she going at 9 a.m. in like, right. a cocktail dress? Right. <laughs> it's great. I support I'm it. I'm like, no, she's a projection. This is not real. Right. I was like, unless she's going to some go-see, which I only know from like America's Next Top Model speak, which, you know, was raging at the sure. time of the, this movie was out so maybe maybe i just think if i'm walking on the street and i'm keanu i'm like oh she's going to an america's next top model casting that makes sense see i will say david to not push back on what you said but offer my own retort again <laughs> uh sure. you're saying that the lure of do you want answers would not maybe get you off the couch i do think inherently right. i'm a person who's got a little bit of the neo mindset where i'm just like something feels wrong i'm looking sure. for a bigger answer mm-hmm. out there right. you know I have never found one in society. Religion does not do the trick for me. You know, I didn't get into exercise. There's no there's no sort of like pill I've taken at any point that like unlocks right. so my here's sense Morpheus, of identity. And right. he's like, look, you know, something's up. And you're like, I do. And he's like, all right, well, you know, I'm I saying I absolutely red. take the meeting. You take the meeting. Right. Yeah, I take the meeting. And then when he says, is there a splinter in your mind? I'm like, you know what? I would never have said it like that. But I think that you might be right, girl. There might be a splinter in my mind. Do you guys have red pill moments? Can you look back on any red pill moments you've had? Yeah, I mean, I want to step back for a second and just say it it is nice to have a conversation where already eight (laughs) minutes in, we have been able to drop red pills so many times and not feel like it's laden with toxicity. And it's maybe I'm realizing now the thing that has me most excited about the Matrix Resurrections is the idea that we can maybe take back the term. Get it back. Because there is there's a malleability to what red pill can mean. And it sucks yeah. that it's been reappropriated by the worst people. Well, don't worry about him. Don't bring him up. Th- that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not It's not canon for me in that yeah. way. It, Red Pill is going to be canon for me as if you can step into, you can step into knowing, and that's going to be it for me. It's going to end there. Um, in terms of the critical recognition, in terms of, you know, commercial success, there's the Matrix, and then there's kind of everything else. And I say this as a Cloud Atlas fan. Okay, let me just get out ahead of it and say, if I'm specking the true, true, I am a Cloud Atlas fan and I spec the true, true. I try to I try to spec the true, true as much as possible. We all have to. But could that have something to do with it? You think even people as auteurish and as out there as the Wachowskis like are not not susceptible to something like that? It's one of those things where even with distance for me, why their other movies didn't succeed is more a question of like. How was Matrix able to hit that hard? Because the movies are all of a piece. And I feel like for years people would go like, why can't they make another Matrix? And you have to go like the Matrix is something of an anomaly 
in that they were able to find a way to translate their ideas that are not very accessible, both in terms of the headiness of their sort of like theology and philosophy and also the earnestness of their emotion, which that kind of naked emotionality is not very hip, right? And Matrix is the one time they found the right way to package it in a way that was like exciting and cool and mentally stimulating for people. And every other movie is them doing the same thing, but in less hip packaging. Right. I think you just said the word. I think it's all about packaging. Yeah. I, I think it's all about how it's being sold to an audience. You're right. With the way these things get marketed, it's tiny little things. I mean, you have on the Matrix poster, here's what you have. You have Keanu Reeves looking cool. Right. And that's, for me as a consumer in 1999, who knows him from Speed, who knows him from, you know, Point Break, whatever, I'm interested in, in Keanu Reeves looking cool. And remember, this is a movie that was originally pitched to Will Smith. Right. So it's almost like they knew at the time they needed that hot guy in leather yeah right but in the years ensuing it almost seems like because they got that success they thought you know maybe that's less important people are willing to go on the ride with us because they know our reputation but the fact is packaging is going to matter no matter what i think they were a little bit screwed after The Matrix is so huge, and there was something to the fact yeah. that the Wachowskis have always been pretty elusive. Like, Lana and Lily both speak more publicly now than they did pre-transition, right? And they're still thought right. of as pretty press shy. But, like, at the time, they never, ever appeared on camera, spoke, did anything. So they're not out there messaging who they are. And the public has this very set idea of who the Wachowskis are and what their movies are. And in a way, their name being slapped on every movie post-Matrix Reloaded works against that movie because there's the incongruity of like – I think even if you're a parent and you're seeing a trailer for Speed Racer, you're like, the Matrix people made this? What is – I can't take my kid hmm. to hmm. this, you know? And if you're a Matrix yeah. fan, you're like, why are they doing a movie that looks like like a, a Jolly Ranchers pack, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's just funny that they – they nailed the moment in the Matrix. Everyone was like, yes, this is the new definition of cool. People in PVC wearing sunglasses indoors, trench coats, submachine guns, kung fu. Like even Oz though Ozfest soundtrack. Right. Like even though like you wouldn't have exactly like cooked up that formula in a boardroom, they nailed it. And then yep. every single other movie they've made has had a very specific style, really inventive, really cool, in my opinion, but has not like lined up with whatever sort of mass culture is interested in right then and there it almost speaks directly to like men in black literally yes, you yes. know what i mean it's like it, it it follows something that was a commercial success so it almost feels like you know that dumb thing where one thing is successful and then it's repeated which i think now feels old but at the time in the late 90s was like kind of how you succeeded totally I, I mean and you know we talked for years about like there was always the threat of are they gonna find some way to continue the matrix without the wachowskis right because it's just right. too valuable mm. a thing and they seem so uninterested in doing it and dave and i would talk about like if they rebooted the matrix tomorrow people wouldn't even be excited about it right like i think the taste is still so bad in people's minds from the sequels and to be clear david is the preeminent North American Matrix sequel defender, and he has won me over substantially to his size over the years. I was going to ask about that. David yeah. will give you a full rundown here. But it, it is wild that the the trailer for Resurrections was 
like so rhapsodically received. And so much of that is like the the return of Keanu, right, to being America's favorite right. human being. He is mythical. He really yeah. is. He carries that now. But also it's like not only is it Lana returning to make a new Matrix with Keanu and Carrie Ann, but it's also it looks insane. Like she's clearly doing a incredibly non-conventional approach to making a fourth Matrix with a batshit cast yeah. too. Like the cast is just like whoa. Like what are all these people doing in a movie together? And David and I just text about it all the time and go, "What do you think she's doing?" Like I cannot even figure out what this movie is at a time where people are making twenty years later sequels that are just the obvious hit the beats, hit the notes. What you're sort of saying, just give people more of what they want. But I feel like people right. are amped for this one in a way that when the Cloud Atlas trailer dropped, Speed Racer, Jupiter Ascending, those trailers were immediately meted with like, what's this hairstyle, as you said? Yeah, right. I wonder how long, because it's interesting now in the last few years with the cultural conversation shifting so much and the Wachowskis both transitioning, how long have you recognized this as a trans allegory uh, and if you've watched it since, that's come forefront in your mind, how it's changed for you and maybe how your takes have, have developed on it. Well, cause when we did, we covered the Wachowskis on our podcast. And by that point, they had both tr- transitioned, I think. Correct. It was fairly recent news uh, from Lily. We did it in 2016. I think Lily transitions maybe 2015. Yeah, it, it was it mm. was new. You know, and so then when you watch the original Matrix with that hindsight and you sort of Yes, you you really lock into how uh, androgynously both Neo and Trinity are portrayed, as, and like how how they're so sexy in such a yeah radical way. And I feel like I wasn't locked into that in 1999 at all. I was like, oh well, those are very handsome, pretty people, right? Like you know, they, yeah, they've got cheekbones, they've got you know, they've got good costumes. Like like they they but like now you look at it and you're sort of like. This is this is like surprisingly audacious the two of them. And then you also read about like how Switch was originally written as a character who had one gender in the Matrix and one gender in the real. Like that, that, that there was more going right. on that they wanted to layer into the film that the studio kind of balked at or what you know like this stuff like that like and you you can pick up on stuff that's that's sort of bubbling underneath. I think building on what you're saying David, it's also the fact that like Carrion Moss and Keanu Reeves look a little similar. They do. Yeah. You know, it's not just that they both are kind of like androgynously beautiful, that there's something a little bit feminine about Keanu and there's something a little bit masculine about Moss, but it's also that they have such similar vibes and looks and coloring and all this sort of stuff. I just, I'm going to throw in a correction here because this is kind of boggling my mind. I looked this up. Uh, Lily Wachowski comes out in March 2016. Our first podcast episode on the Wachowskis comes out April 2016. So we had committed to doing it and we're doing it in the like, oh, wow. And then one of these two filmmakers transitioned. And at the time we start recording it, they both had transitioned. I think I had no trans reading of it until... Lana came out, at at which point it immediately became, if not the dominant thing in my reading of the movie. Because I do think it's one of those films, like most great films, there's a a stretchiness to its metaphors, right? Most movies Mm -hmm. that really like sear into the heart of a culture in that way, 
are very personal expressions of the filmmakers that somehow have a malleability that can relate to other people in their prison, which you see through men's right activists going, oh, man, this movie's totally about me. But I do think if you're sort of viewing these movies from an auteurist angle, it is hard for that not to be the dominant thing going on there, you know? That the two of them right. are still presenting male and have not sort of figured themselves out thoroughly at the time this movie is made. And it is all about that longing for the answers, you know, the wish that someone mm-hmm. will knock on your door and say, "You, everything seems weird to you, right? Yeah, the confirmation that things are not right. right. What if I yeah. could explain to you a way to take a new control of your body and understanding of the world and all that sort of stuff? It's a very powerful metaphor. It's very powerful. Yeah. And it's it's rare you get to see a movie that is a, a filmmaker struggling to express something that they do not have the literal language to express yet. You know, it, they can only express it through their art. They have not worked through this yet. And to have it be a film that on top of that is like so functional as a popcorn action movie. It's this thing that elevates right. this movie to this like this realm that is very rarefied air. You know, this metaphor I use in my mind, which I don't know if I've ever said out loud because I don't know if it makes sense or if it's really dorky, but it's it's sort of like we we cover a lot of popcorn movies on the show because we're really interested when people get big budgets and whatever to do. And sometimes people start out from indie backgrounds. You make a film like Bound, you know, Mm -hmm. or people start out as genre filmmakers like James Cameron. and They just get to make bigger and bigger genre films or whatever it is. Yeah, we just saw it with, um, you know, The Eternals. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, you don't get bigger. Right. You know, there was just an announcement that it's going to be in IMAX um, for the first time ever, and I have friends reposting it that I never would think would be so excited about this, but it really does. I mean, you you know who, I just mentioned him, but you know who talks about this movie all the time is RuPaul. Yeah. You know, and it's Mm. so, you wouldn't think, but it is so relevant, obviously, when you think about it for more than 15 seconds to queer interest, because it is about, you know, shirking the shackles, you know, like all of this is not real. It's as real as you allow it to be. And so in that way, the movie is not only a trans allegory, but it's also anti-capitalist, it's anti the patriarchy, it's all of these things. It really is a Rorschach for you as an existing member of society to look at it and see what you want to see. And now, you know, I I think the Wachowskis are more public, as you're saying, and so they're coming out and saying, uh, we're actually very happy that it's being discussed as a trans allegory, because that is it in its heart. But it's also, I still think it still exists as that Rorschach. I really do. It's a film that I think feels more relevant now in a lot of ways and that it's a film about like mm-hmm. the end of history, right? Like because the world yeah. of the Matrix is this sort of modern world, you know, the world we all think the simulation we all live in. It's this kind of vague modern world, skyscrapers, technology, everything seems good and it's just never going to progress because like the progression would show you I guess, like, then, oh, machines get created and there's a war with them, right? Like, but it's no, it's stopped. We've just, like, stopped. We've hit this kind of, like, what is there next to do sort of place in life. And when the movie's coming out in 1999, that feels very relevant. It's sort of pre-9-11. A lot of people are saying, like, is this it? Like, do we just kind of live in liberal democracy and do nothing? Like, you know, like, or whatever, you know. And now, retrospectively, it also feels so interesting to consider that sort of modern dead end like a capitalist dead dead end that that, that we've we've hit it's at it- 
It's so funny. Like, I never thought of it as being pre 9 11. It is very pre 9 11. It so is. Yes. I never thought of this as being a Clinton era movie. And it feels even more ahead of its time when you, when you think about it like that. And I'm wondering just in terms of like impact overall. I mean, when you, cause you mentioned, you know, being interested in George Lucas and him essentially getting written the blank check, obviously being the director of Star Wars, this movie comes out the same year as the Phantom Menace. It also comes out around the same yeah. time, even the same year as the sixth sense. Yeah. So in terms of science fiction, a lot is going on at this time. But I think most people would say that in terms of science fiction, because this is really the perfect sci-fi film, because it allows you to really think about things and think about things like sociopolitically, and also it's also a quote-unquote future movie with action, etc. We see it on face value as a sci-fi. The dumbest person in the world can totally enjoy this film just on a surface level without having to engage with any of the ideas, internalize them at all. Would you agree that in terms of modern sci-fi, it's before The Matrix and after The Matrix? Yeah, in a way that I do think to some degree, like, fucks Phantom Menace. I think Phantom Menace had its own problems, but I think when this movie comes yeah. out, like, six weeks before Phantom Menace, mm-hmm. and everyone has spent, like, 16 years going, like, oh my god, what is George Lucas gonna do? A new Star Wars with right. CGI? What could that even be? It's probably gonna open, open the new door, right. and then this movie comes in and opens the new door in terms of seamlessness of special effects, which we could talk about, in terms of seamlessness of the CGI, which I think is probably the most glaring issue with The Phantom Menace and the reboots, is the lack of believability and um, absence of practical effects. But yeah, exactly. It is very hard to identify the emotional narrative in The Phantom Menace, you know, to understand what we're supposed to care about outside of well, this is before those other things you cared about, you know? Right. And I think Matrix has that kind of clean entry point that's like Luke standing looking at the two sunsets, you know? There's this very relatable hero's journey, which this movie is also sort of like a commentary on the hero's journey, and then the sequels sort of deconstruct that a little bit. But I also think like... The thing that Phantom Menace could never do is replicate the feeling that people who were alive in the 70s had watching Star Wars for the first time, where you go into it with this vague Mm -hmm. idea of, I saw the trailers, their ships, it looks cool, and then you see the movie and it blows your mind. You walk out of the theater with this very expanded view of what's possible. And I think Matrix gave people that hit, you know? The trailers really did not sell the ideas of the movie that much. I mean, I remember just thinking like, oh, this is some whatever, you know, it's it's like cool movie, cool, uh, slow mo sci fi gunfighting movie. I remember the trailer had that the shot of him of someone jumping, maybe Neo or, you know, one one of the big jumps. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it had Keanu going, whoa. (laughs) And it had that image of the agent's face, you know, person's face sort of morphing into the agent's face. Yeah. That was very kind of like, like Griffin's saying, you're just kind of like, well, this looks like something like, yeah, I I don't really know what's going on here, but like, this is just kind of like these brass visuals that I would like to see more of. I mean, I know this movie comes out a a year after Matrix, but you could have walked out of that trailer and had the same view you'd have watching the trailer for Tarsum's The Cell, Mm. you know, where you're just like, wow, that looks insane. Look at these visuals. 
I remember seeing that trailer and it was I, 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 that was like a haunting, right. crazy ass fucking trailer. And also, I think a lot of people saw it too because of Jennifer Lopez. Totally, you know what I mean? The packaging. But the cell did not hit a nerve in the way that the Matrix did, and I don't think anyone from no. those trailers, aside from how cool it looked, would have guessed that it would have lingered this hard. Right. And Tarantino has talked about that, where it's like maybe the best movie going experience he's ever had was seeing the Matrix opening night. I think at the man's Chinese mm. theater and being like. This is the last time people are not going to know that The Matrix is The Matrix. Like, I went right. to the opening night screening, right. and from this moment on, the word's going to get out where you're like, no, this movie's, like, insane. That's not just some cool action movie. This movie's operating on a different level. Yeah. And it is, like, I mean, my sister was one when the first Matrix came out, and she has not seen it, and I think she only knows things through cultural osmosis that are kind of equivalent to having seen the trailer that doesn't tell you any plot. And I'm gonna, like, you know, by hook or by crook, get her to watch this first movie before Resurrections. Oh, I, that feels that feels essential. Yeah, but I'm also just curious, like, if you have very little understanding of what this is, this is the closest you can come to reapproximating that feeling of just having your mind blown open by this movie, you know? You also can't speak, you can't have a conversation without knowing how to speak. You right. know what I mean? It's kind of just like that type of foundational thing where you're going to need to see The Matrix before you can see The Matrix Resurrections yes. because what what would you think it is? Right. You know, like there's so many... The foundational basic thing. Yeah, like to what extent is the Matrix Resurrections going to worry about new viewers? My guess is it actually might be a lot. Like it might actually do a fair amount to try and get people because it's been 20 years, right? Like it's, yeah. it stands to reason there might be people going who's like, Yeah, yeah, this is sort of newer to me. But the Matrix sequels are so deep on lore. Go off, David. Go off. And the, this is your moment. Go off. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, look, I would need, I need so much time to talk about it. I can, I can, look. <laughs> but the original is too, I mean, the thing that's underrated around the first Matrix is that it has so much information to convey. Just, just sort of mm -hmm. unfathomable amounts of world building to dump on you. And it does it through literal like training programs and instructional videos and things like that. And never feels, you know, boring or expositional. Like, you know, it, it works. Because it's based in character and we care. That's, that's I think, yes. the movie's genius is because we are being given w what is basically exposition for an entire series of films. But because it's based in character, it's it's actually, you know, it, it, it won Oscars for editing, visual effects, sound, sound yeah. editing. But this is a screenplay that is for the ages. I mean, I think that it's just... An example of, you know, the hesitance to um, commend genre films, and I mean every genre, for just how brilliant they are. I mean, this is a, you could write this screenplay and then hang your hat up for the rest of your fucking life. I mean, it's truly brilliant and exploring things that probably any of their contemporaries, or the vast majority of their contemporaries are not intellectually creative enough to breach no and with an economy that is kind of astonishing for as david said how dense the ideas are the amount they have to get out the amount of yes. characters they have to carry the amount of world building that has to happen i mean this is the year that american beauty wins best screenplay but the other four nominees this year matrix not nominated rude are being john malkovich magnolia the sixth sense and topsy-turvy yeah it's a good year so you have like four incredible screenplays in there obviously 1999 is amazing year 
Yeah, but the, but the one that has probably aged the worst wins the Oscar. Yeah. And right. and the Matrix is the one that has maybe aged the best for it not even to be nominated as wild. But yeah, it's like it, it was even packaging. It was packaging. packaging. It, it was even for as dominant that movie was. There was this refusal to like accept it outside of the tech categories, which is just sweet. I think it won the most Oscars of any film that year. No, American Beauty beat it. Really? It won five. <sighs> yeah, because American Beauty won uh, picture, director, screenplay, actor and cinematography. Lame. Big five. You can feel them loving it more than they want yes. to admit, though, with the editing nomination, because that just that, that doesn't just happen. And it was one of those Oscar years where the Matrix wins, like you say, four Oscars. And so everyone coming up is kind of like a little odd. Like it's like the <laughs> yeah. Mad Max year, right? Where everyone winning for Mad Max is sort of like wearing just a louder piece of clothing than everyone else. Or, right. you know, so all the Matrix people are coming up and going like, there is no spoon, man. And everyone's like, oh, okay. The freaks you know? are at the party. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and then as is so true with a lot of these Oscars and it's true with that Mad Max year, there's this sort of shift where it's like, okay, we're done with the text. Now on to, you know, the serious grown-up right. dramas, right? Like, you know, we won't be hearing from them anymore. I'm extremely interested to see what they do with Dune this year for that reason. I think that it's like, we have a year where it's like, I don't know how you guys felt about that movie, but I think obviously we're not going to see anything touch it in, in the technical categories, but then I'm really curious to see how it gets accepted in other fields. I think it will get major traction. It has that sort of sheen, that class sheen that they're looking for in that it's made by an oscar nominated director prestige it's got great actors and it's based on a famous work of literature so like it can kind of sneak in that way whereas the matrix it's like that this movie has kung fu in it and people say that they're doing kung fu as they do yeah. kung fu so like i yeah. do i just think especially in 1999 which is the 99 Oscars, they're like the the Bonnie and Clyde Oscars, right? Like people always talk about that that year where it's like there's this new yeah. stuff coming into Hollywood, but then there's also some old, you know, like there's some sort of golden age stuff and like there's this weird push and pull. It's the same with the 99 Oscars where you've got all that stuff you're talking about, Griff, like Magnolia yeah. is, is in the mix. The Matrix Fight Club is in the mix, you know. Sixth Sense, John Malkovich. Yeah, that was actually, an out, uh, that was like an out there year for but them. But then they've also got Cider House Rules and The Green Mile and I mean, The Insider, which is, I think is a great movie, but it's more of a movie that they can recognize, you know, like it's yeah. all mixed up and they, they're not sure where to gravitate to. And so they go to the middle, which is American Beauty, which is like, well, this feels fresh because it's so frank and it's so you know, explicit in a way. And it's about like depression and, you know, but, but now you're like, oh, well that, that movie is, is corny and like unrealistic in my opinion, no offense to American beauty. But also American beauty was a juggernaut. It was a massive blockbuster success. And everyone was. was saying, this is it tapped spoke into to the, the moment. Right. right. At the exact same way as the matrix. It's just wild that the matrix has only grown and American beauty. You're like that movie stuck in 1999. It sure is. Right. There is something about the lack of prestige actors in this movie at the time that it comes out, right? Versus something like Dune with this cast that's just like dripping with credibility. And even Mad yeah. Max Fury Road, you have Charlize as an Oscar winner Charlize. and Tom Hardy is like the new guy, right? Sure. Big guy, right. I think Dune is probably going to play like Fury Road at the Oscars where it will maybe get like a director and a picture nomination. It's going to win like six awards the first hour of the show and then never get mentioned ever again. But right. you look at The Matrix and you know that like a 
okay, their first choice was they wanted like Will Smith and Sean Connery, right? And then they wanted David Duchovny mm-hmm. and whoever. Like there were all this like it, 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 there was all this passing that happened from more obvious stars. And the offer out to Janet Jackson to play Trinity, yeah. which I did not know until I researched this movie, but that they really pursued her to be Trinity and she couldn't but do it. But you end up with Keanu Reeves, an actor who kind of could not be taken less seriously by the Hoi Polloi in 1999, despite the fact that it is now impossible to think of anyone who would have served this movie better. Right. Uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne is the one guy who sort of got credibility at this moment, right? Yeah, he has an Oscar nomination. Yeah. Right, but this is maybe seen as like, well, it's obvious paycheck. He's playing the mentor character in this thing until you see him and you're like, oh, no, this is his defining role. It's a performance. It's, it's a, a performance. It's a performance, and, a and he yeah. will be Morpheus. That will be the the first thing in his obituary. Like he will never mm-hmm. surpass the influence of this character. Your female lead is like a Canadian model who's done TV, right? <laughs> Your fourth lead is Joey Pants. Yeah. Who's great in it, though? So good. I've always contended this movie should have gotten two Oscar nominations for its cast. Joey Pants supporting actor, Gloria Stewart supporting actress. Gloria Stewart, for my money, is like one of the best two-scene performances ever. And Pants is just unbelievable in this. He's also just one of my favorite actors in history. Gloria Foster. You do this all the time, Griff. You're, of course, thinking of the iconic Gloria Stewart of Titanic fame, who two years prior would receive her Oscar nomination. Maybe not that deservedly. I do this so often, Matt. You have no idea. Yes, Gloria Foster, who's incredible in it. But yes, but it's like, right, and then who's your villain in the movie? The third lead from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Like, this cast is so bizarre at this time, you know? Yeah. And everyone becomes iconic from it, but well it's funny because Hugo Weaving now is uh you know has done the villain thing so many times, but yeah. in the Matrix obviously yeah. it was unusual. Lawrence Fishburne has kind of I guess he would obviously he'd been in like Boys and the, he'd played mentor types before, mm-hmm. but I feel like he cashes in on Morpheus for a generation basically. I mean he hadn't done much genre stuff before this yeah joey pants it's like a whole new world for him like i guess joey pants is just doing his thing forever i maybe maybe i mean obviously the matrix gives him a ton of juice like or whatever but i guess yeah. he really he's playing a nervy guy he always will be playing nervy guys like I, I guess i shouldn't say that the matrix like unlocked him in some way but it's a different look it's it's concurrent with the soprano it's yeah. it's very concurrent but, and this is a big a difference i would say is that i'd say uh, i'm looking at his career now but i think a majority of his films pre-bound and then taken to the next level with matrix the nerviness is primarily played for comedy even if he's playing a villainous character a criminal right. it's like this guy's a little laughable in how sort of on edge he is and Matrix puts like an intensity into a, a genuine menace that I don't know if he ever would have even been considered for Sopranos if not for Matrix. You know, he might have seemed a little too goofy. What's funny is if I have one tiny little oh. qualm with the movie and I, and and you need you need mm-hmm. this, but it's I always laugh when this happens is when a villain speechifies. And this mm. this movie has it twice where I'm like, girl, if you didn't need your moment so bad right now, you would have won the movie. But Joey Pants just has to orate in that scene where like he's unplugging them and it was his downfall. It's just it's just so funny. Like um 
but also in a in a popcorn movie like this, you need it. We're we're here to have fun too. <laughs> if I could play devil's advocate for a second, that's one of the reasons I think you got to give him the Oscar nom here because he plays this so well, and I think he's one of the few guys in you believe it this type of scene where it feels like he's actually getting at no, this is literally this guy's undoing in his wiring as a person that he is so arrogant that he cannot just go through with the thing. He needs to take a victory lap. He needs everyone to know how smart he is beforehand. He needs to angrily let Trinity know that he wanted to have sex with her. You know, like he has to Mm -hmm. sort of throw all this shit on top of it when he could have just won. Yeah. He needs to be more chill. He needs to be more chill. He needs to just let, he needs to just let it go. Right. Um, so I have a segment on this podcast, which actually it's kind of ironic for this movie, but this segment that I do every episode is called, But How Is It a Queer Narrative? Mm. Now that's when I, over a techno beat, list the reasons that this is a queer narrative. You will not hear the techno beat. My listeners at home will. Everyone, let's gear up for this. Raves. Taking pills. Getting a bug from three dudes at once. Flexibility. Falling in love with someone who looks just like you. Betrayal by a close friend who's also a cipher. Being positive that you're the one. This movie is literally a trans allegory. Okay, and that's how this movie is a queer narrative. Anything to add? (laughs) I think you got it. Did did I kind of cover it or anything to add queer narrative-wise from you boys? I, I mean, first of all, I just think, you know, I'm sure it's going to sound great, the final product, once it's it's mixed and edited and everything. Your listeners might be missing out by not getting to hear the live acapella version. Right, the, the, the no soundtrack okay, version. Okay, we're going to release that. That's going to be my my Taylor's version. That's, that's, Look, I'll just say, version. Yeah. this is a movie about waking up to yourself, right? Like, you know, coming mm-hmm. into this new world. And then you literally get to figure out your personality by, like, doing a bunch of little productions on the computer. You know, like, you go yeah. to a co- Kung yeah. Fu school or what and you pick out new clothes and you like design a whole new look your your digital self like you know like it's it's not just that you're like you have this mental awakening that the you know there are people pulling the strings and yes the world is 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 a capital machine or whatever you know but it's also like you get to just reprogram yourself like exactly as you'd like to be like there's something there's something very beautiful about that and to build on that, it's also about finding your people. Sure. Right. <laughs> that chosen family. <laughs> but these people are literally an underground community, right? Right. Yes. Yep. They have not seen yeah. the sun. <laughs> They're that underground. To put it as bluntly as that is actually, I mean, that's. That's kind of gorgeous. And right. And they're all like messy and dirty and suffering together. And then they're like, let's dress up and put on a show, as David said, you know, like when we go out, we're going to go hard and we're going to make everyone turn their heads. Like my whole life has been theater. Right. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of into it. That's the, when, when they say they were born in the theater, what they mean was they realized they were yeah, in the Matrix. Exactly. <laughs> Um, well, this was fucking great. I mean, you guys really wore this one out. I want to thank you guys so much. And I would encourage everyone listening to listen to the Blank Check podcast with these two because... Please do. Everyone that's listening to this is going to be like, Matt, this is a whole different episode with you because usually it's me and one of my gays talking about like A Star is Born. And I'm like, what song did you like? And here we're talking about like narrative structure, importance in the cultural lexicon. So I have to thank you guys for elevating. We talked Oscars though. We did, we did. <laughs> 
But that's also what what the Lost Culturista episode of Blank Check is like. When we talk Brokeback Mountain, you guys kind of turn our show into your right. show. Right. We're like, so Ang Lee's, right, like sort of approach to narrative. And you guys are like, no, no, we're not going to do that right now. And you guys are like, here's the thing about spitting into your hand and using it as lube. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's how we compliment each other. And I thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. And thank you so much for doing the pod. Our pleasure. Anytime. HBO Max Movie Club is a production of HBO Max, iHeartRadio, and is hosted by Matt Rogers. That's me. It's executive produced by Ethan Fixell, produced by Camila Salazar, researched by Steve Griffin, and engineered, edited, and mixed by Matt Stillo. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed HBO Max Movie Club, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the season, so thank you to everyone who tuned into the HBO Max Movie Club. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HBO Max Movies. Bye! The Matrix Resurrections is available in theaters and on HBO Max in the U.S. only for 31 days from theatrical release. And you can watch The Matrix, The Matrix Reloaded, and The Matrix Revolutions on HBO Max until January 31st, 2022.